Today's epistle reading and focus passage is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 23. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you, as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Almost six years ago, my family moved to a little town in southwest Georgia called Plains. We moved from Metro Louisville, a city of over one million people, drove through or around or tried our best to get through Atlanta in one piece. When we succeeded that, we then headed into southwest Georgia, and on the way to Plains, we gathered in images of shrinking, small-town America. We had not experienced that living in Louisville, Kentucky, a booming city that continues to grow to this day. But once we had made it out of Atlanta, once we had gotten off the interstate and started down state roads and county highways, we got a glimpse into this decline of rural, small-town America. I know there are towns like that in North Carolina. But when we drove through southwest Georgia, we learned and we saw about all the empty storefronts, these ghost town main streets, vacant, boarded-up school buildings, and decrepit rotting homes. City after city was like this. We would be in and out of the city within five minutes because they were so small and the population had declined. An article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution confirmed that this is what's happening not just in Georgia but around the country. It's true that most young people when they graduate from high school don't move back to such small towns. In fact, more than half of Georgia's small towns with populations under 10,000 have lost significant population since 2010. 
Rural residents face numerous challenges, including access to good jobs, transportation, economic opportunities, and health care. Small manufacturing jobs have dried up. Modernization and innovation means fewer people are needed in farming jobs, which is what most of these small communities had known in decades past. Of course, there are efforts and there is hope that one day there might be a revitalization of small-town America, but it is a fragile hope. When we look at technological advancements, the ability to work from home, to work remotely, there is only a fragile hope that we will see a resurrection of sorts of small-town North America. The large cities will keep getting larger, and the small cities will keep shrinking. I know that I, since I felt a personal sentiment when driving through those small towns. They were towns I didn't really know anybody in them, and yet there was this feeling of hopelessness that overcame me. When we drove through those towns and there was no sign of life, it was a hopeless feeling, a depressing feeling, just to drive through these cities. It was entirely hopeless. Of course, that's not just the way our towns are headed. Some of you have sat in my office or spoken up during Bible studies or reflected with me over a cup of coffee or lunch about those things that you are tempted to feel hopeless about. Never mind small-town America, you may feel a fragile sense of hope about society itself, about culture, about our children or young people. You may have only a fragile bit of hope for a functioning government or leadership. You may have only a fragile sense of hope for the church the church across North America, and if I'm being honest, First Baptist Church of Black Mountain. I've heard your concerns. I've voiced the same concerns. The change in this world is occurring so quickly that when we drive through decrepit old towns and we seem to have no future on that front or any other, Our hope is fragile and teetering on the edge of a knife, isn't it? But this is not the first time in history, especially in Christian history, when the people of God have sensed this fragile hope. The passage we read today finds a group of Christians who are quite vulnerable and may at the time of Paul's writing, only have a small sense of hope for their own future as a church and quite possibly the Christian movement itself. In the book of Ephesians, we read of Paul's letter to a wavering, fragile people. And yet Paul offers encouraging words to the people at Ephesus who were excitingly a part of this early church and the movement of the gospel, and yet at the same time were susceptible to the feelings of despair and fear that we might feel today. 
Paul, however, speaks of a hope that the church at Ephesus must remain attentive to. In this passage, Paul reminds the church of their special place in the world, of their special calling, a special mark that they have received because they have placed their hope in Christ. Being a Christian at Ephesus is not simply a demographic. It's not simply believing or learning the right doctrine. Being a Christian at Ephesus for this church meant that they had a special calling, a calling that no one else could share because they were in Ephesus with a special purpose in living out the gospel in their own context. They were living out God's plan in real time. It's a story that began so long ago, and Paul tells them is finding fulfillment in their city. This small, fragile, vulnerable people in this powerful Roman city were called to carry on the gospel message against all odds. Not only are they a part of the story, but they must understand their part in that story. It's not too much to assume that the people at Ephesus had a lot to learn about what it means to be a Christian and to live out that Christian faith. I think we sometimes assume that because the early church was so close to the time of Christ and had the Apostle Paul himself writing them letters that they didn't have any questions. They didn't have any concerns about what it meant to believe in Jesus or to make sense of the cross or the resurrection. I would venture to say they had it much tougher than we had it. They didn't have Bibles they could open up. They didn't have the whole canon of Scripture and theologians across the world who could help us make sense of this Christian faith. And so the early Christians at Ephesus had challenging days ahead, not just to make sense of this Christian faith, but to live it out. Paul wrote, Paul wrote to pray that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened in order that they may know the hope to which they had been called. They were challenged to pray that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. There was more to learn there was more to hope for, Paul was saying. When was the last time you prayed that God would open the eyes of your heart to be enlightened by a greater hope? When was the last time that was a part of your prayer? Has your prayers been mostly been marked by despair and lament? How often does hope find its way into your prayers? Perhaps most striking, Paul speaks of their power rooted in the resurrection itself. Paul made a bold and exciting claim for the church at Ephesus. Paul told them that the power that they live by is the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. When was the last time you considered that what we do as a church and the power present in this place is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that'll wake you up a little bit, won't it? 
that'll remind you of the kind of task we have here and the kind of power and ability that we have to fulfill this task. No matter what we see in the world around us, no matter how many empty pews we view or the fact that our Sunday school classes might not be full, we are told that we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead present in our church. I don't know about you, but that's pretty exciting. The same power that was in the tomb that brought Jesus from the grave is the same power in our churches. But we are not simply about telling about the resurrection. We are about living it. We are to be a people of resurrection hope if we are to take our faith seriously. And so what does that mean for us, First Baptist Church? Well, just like Paul tells the church at Ephesus, we too have a mark. We have a mark because we have placed our hope in Jesus, and that mark will show. If you remember last week, we talked about a wrestling match between Jacob and God. And said that when we wrestle with God, we walk away with a limp or a mark or some kind of distinguishing characteristic. Well, here it is again. We have a mark because we affirm the hope of the resurrection. There should be something different about each one of you. And there should be something different about our church that sets us apart from anything else in culture because we have been marked by the power of the hope of the resurrection. You probably learned in school growing up in a psychology class or a biology class about something called flight or fight. That when we are presented with something that seems dangerous or insurmountable or threatens our lives, our brains tend to move towards two extremes. We either run away as fast as we can, flee the situation, or we stand our ground and we fight. We become combative. The fight or flight syndrome is a stress response that your brain may engage in at any time. Not necessarily your consciousness, but your brain decides that you are in danger and your brain often perceives mortal peril at the most inappropriate times leaving you feeling terrible and desperate to escape the situation that you are in. In other words, we have that tendency to put up a fight or run from the fight when we sense danger. It is a part of the human condition. Unfortunately, the church, because we are full of humans, we take on this mentality collectively as well. Churches have a tendency to flee from a challenge, don't we? We like to abandon any exciting opportunity at times. We find a way to talk our way out of opportunities. And yet at the same time, we can become combative with culture. We can seek to fight culture. We can seek to put up our dukes and become hateful towards others who are not like us. I think Paul says that the church has a third way. Instead of simply a fight or instead of a flight, we have hope. We have the hope of resurrection 
we have a new mark. We have the hope of resurrection in the face of danger and fear so that we neither have to fight nor flee when confronted with a challenge. First Baptist Church, you have shown this mark in some very clear ways over the past few years. Your support of the Swannanoe Valley Christian Ministry Homeless Shelter, your willingness to be a host location is a mark that you care for those in the community whose society has cast aside. You chose not to fight the challenge. You chose not to flee the challenge. You chose to offer resurrection hope. Your support of women in ministry and leadership, supporting and encouraging those called by the Spirit to do ministry, when other Christians are telling women to shut up and go home, you chose not to fight or flee. You chose to offer resurrection hope to anyone who wishes to see their call lived out in this place. Your support of Children and Friends Daycare most recently and your willingness to enter an agreement to lease land says you are marked by a desire to seek the welfare of our city and provide hope to families who wonder if they can raise their children in Black Mountain. You chose not to fight. You chose not to flee. You chose to offer resurrection hope. And yet we're not done. Paul says we must become more enlightened of this hope. It is a growing process that has not stopped. It continues on. We are told that there's a way to fight the fight-or-flight syndrome, things such as exercise or meditation or engaging in laughter are some of those things that help us from tapping into that response. But how do we become a people of hope rather than reactionary fear? Sometimes a passage I often go back to, and I know you do the same, I know the passage is sometimes considered cliche and it can be used, mishandled sometimes. But in Jeremiah 29, 11, God knows the plans for us. God gives us a hope and a future. These, this is a word that God offered the people through Jeremiah. It was not just to one individual, it was to the people as a whole, when they were in a time of exile, a time of anxiety and fear and a fragile hope. God says, I know the plans I have for you. You have a hope and a future. If we can take that on as part of our identity, our church can look so different from a world marked by fear and paralysis from fear. We can take the steps that Jesus is calling us to do because we do not fear death and we do not have, we, we have hope and not hopelessness. It's easy as a church in North America to see the decline around us, to see the rise of the nuns, those who profess no kind of religious belief, and to believe that our power has, has gone. It's easy to look around and believe that the church's influence is fading and it is only a matter of time before we are completely wiped out. But the resurrection hope and power 
that we read of in today's scripture remains in this church today. And it remains in the church across North America and across the world. But we've got to show it. What's it going to look like when hope is fragile? What's it going to look like when we get the sense that our church or our town is starting to take on the same front as small town North America? We've got to show some hope to the world. Susan was in the hospital near death. Susan's sister was talking to another member of the family on a cell phone, and the sister whispered softly into the phone, you better come soon, she might not last much longer. But Susan overheard that conversation, by the way, and she said, I'm not ready to go yet. And this made everyone feel quite uncomfortable, so they quickly changed the subject and were trying to talk about other things. But Susan stubbornly said again and much much louder, I'm not ready to go yet. And so with that, she sat up in the bed and said to the hospital chaplain, let's dance. Let's dance. How about Patsy Cline's crazy? So the chaplain left the room and managed to rouse up a boombox and a Patsy Cline CD. When he returned to the room, Susan gave orders to push the furniture back. And so with a frail body, yet a strong resolve, Susan stood up and she and the chaplain began to dance to Patsy Cline's crazy. At first, all the family members stared in disbelief. They stared in disbelief, but then all of them found a partner and joined the dance. And so when the dancing was over, Susan went back to bed, and she died a few days later. At her funeral, they both laughed and cried as they remembered the dance and how it illustrated her great love for life, even when hope seemed fragile. What an image. Dancing at death's door. But see, as Christian believers who have the power of hope, we can do just that. We, like Susan, can go out dancing. And let's remember that death is only half the story. The other half of the story is resurrection and eternal life. So even in death, let's remember to dance. First Baptist Church, I I sometimes forget to focus on the hope that we share together. We talk so often about the challenges facing us and what we need to do moving forward, but we must be reminded of these words from Scripture today, from Paul's words to the church at Ephesus, that we have the same power of hope and resurrection today. And quite frankly, that makes us a little crazy, doesn't it? but we're going to live it out because that's something that the world desperately needs to see. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you forgive us when we don't speak of hope enough. We ask that you forgive us when we don't live our lives marked by hope. Your word is full of hopeful stories. 
Stories reminding us that death and decay does not have the last word. But that you are making all things new and that new creation is bursting forth around us if we would simply look for it and if we would simply live it. I pray that our church would embrace a resurrection hope. I pray that each person here today as individuals, if they are feeling hopeless today, that they would leave this place with a resurrection hope, a new outlook on life, knowing that despair does not have the last word. Because of your life, death, and resurrection, because of the empty tomb, we have hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.